Welcome back to the Music History Project. Today we're featuring an interview with Frank Wells, past president of AES, the Audio Engineering Society, and this year they're going to be celebrating their 75th anniversary. Welcome to the Music History Project. We are your hosts. I'm Dan Del Fiorentino. I'm Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And I'm Alex Rossner. All of the content of our podcast is based on the Oral History Collection, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. This collection is over 5,000 interviews and growing. To learn more, check it out on nam.org library. Welcome back, everybody, to this exciting episode of the Music History Project as we focus on the Audio Engineering Society. Wow, 75 years in business, if that's the right word for it, just serving our industry, making amazing innovations and documentation of all the great research that's been going on in that field is just an amazing wealth of knowledge. And it's wonderful to pause for a few minutes to recognize their many contributions. So we have a very special interview with one of their past presidents, Frank Wells, who came to the NAM show in April 2023 to accept the uh, NAM Milestone Award for 75 years of AES. So I'm really excited to have this interview. And our special guest is the one and only Zach Phillips. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Dan. I thought it would be fun as we uh, begin to listen to Frank to get a little perspective on the uh, connection with NAM. You know, the Audio Engineering Society has such a legacy among audio professionals. This is a badge of honor to belong to this group. Mm. And for that reason and so many more, they're, they're, they're an organization we've worked with and partnered with. Uh, NAM's partnered with the Audio Engineering Society on education programs. Um, different events for their members at our show. And um, they bring a lot to the table. This is a group that specializes in areas that are um, both broad and deep. Audio science, um, you know, workshops and all points in between. Fantastic. Well, let's get started. Here is Frank Wells giving his take about the importance and back history of the AES. Well, the Audio Engineering Society, yes, 75 years. So uh, right after World War II, 40, 1948, um, there were new technologies out there that had been developed in wartime, but not applied to things like audio, certainly not that frivolous of a, of a kind of thing. And it was beginning to do, uh, beginning to be. And there were people and engineers who had now time and, and resources available to, uh, to, to look at making audio better. And a group of them got together in, in New York that had kind of a little audio club and were interested in pursuing quality audio. And they formed um, the Audio Engineering Society in 1948. First meeting was in March. Um, and they had initially uh, 37 members to a, a global total of 10,000 now. Um, and we're in, let's see, we are... We have 90 professional sections, 87 countries represented in that, 169 student sections in 28 countries, and we feel like our our reach touches 175 countries based on the contacts lists and things that we have Hmm. and such. So it is a global organization. 
It is a member organization, so it's an individual member. It's um, corporate entities can become sustaining members because they support what we do, but it is all individuals. And it's the only organization, professional organization, that's devoted specifically to audio, audio technology and the advancement of it and the application of that. And it is not a trade organization per se, even though there are, there are trade events um, and exhibitions at, at the conventions. So as a member-led organization, there is a professional staff of the Engineering Society, the, an ex executive director and a support staff, um, but it really relies so much on volunteers. We don't get the things done that AES gets done without an enormous amount of time and effort from some of the best minds in the business, too. So these people are passionate and dedicated to pushing or advancing a standard on loudness for broadcast, on um, interconnection of, of digital audio for live sound or whatever it may be, acoustics and those concerns, these people have come together and they put amazing amounts of time and effort into, uh, into, into creating standards and creating guidelines for, for uh, practice and creating new, uh, new technologies and developing them and working together to say, well, I had this idea, well, that pairs with my idea and, and making better things happen uh, for the industry at large. So, for instance, standards. AF standards have started with things like vinyl, uh, where you're looking at the uh, reproduction curves for vinyl records and such so that you get consistent performance time after time after time. There are standards for professionals too. So everybody's familiar with a AS port on a piece of gear, which is an XLR connector that carries digital audio. Well, that works when you plug it into one and you plug it into another, you can assume it's going to work because they're compliant with the standard. Um, in the old days, when I started out in, in audio, uh, a piece of gear from Japan would be have a different polarity on an XLR connector than a piece of gear from Europe. And you had to be very careful for that in your studio wiring. You had to flip it somewhere along the chain and get all those things sorted out. So even just AES doing that in 1984, making a standard that said, pin two is hot is a, an amazing thing that made a whole lot of people's lives <laughs> way easier uh, when it comes to wiring a studio and, and wondering why when you put that signal with this signal, all of a sudden they were comb filtering out because they were 180 degrees out of phase. You know, it was, uh, it was a, a very different thing. So AS67, which is a digital Rosetta Stone now for, the, um, for Ethernet connected um, audio. Uh, networked audio over Ethernet, and there's a kind of a dozen different standards there. Some manufacturers' proprietary standards, some different standards organizations have put together. And what AS67 does is says, okay, you guys do whatever you want to do to control your gear and to do all of that, but let's make the audio standard so that you can sh at least plug that connector in from one network system to another one and share the audio, uh, and those kind of things. So AS makes makes everyone's life easier. And in that regard, from, from standards and documentation. The AS also has great resources in technology. Again, we've been doing this for 75 years. Uh, we've had AS journals. The first convention was in 1949, and there's been 134 conventions since then. Uh, technical papers are presented at the convention, which are um, 
the latest research out of academia and out of manufacturers who are bringing it forward. In some cases, they're just sharing it. In other cases, they're saying, we're hoping somebody else is going to give us some ideas for that. Or we're hoping someone else wants to commercialize uh, this, this technology we're bringing forward. Those have been documented and, 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 and kept up over the years. And we have 20,000 plus searchable documents online that is kind of the sum total of audio knowledge <laughs> and it's it, it's that leading edge and then when you get to the conventions where they're presenting these papers they're also presenting new ideas and new products um, the 45 uh, rpm the big hole 45 small format single was introduced at the very first aes convention and along the years later the mp3 was introduced at an aes convention the compact disc was introduced at an aes convention um, so these products that are that are that are coming out today have had their their many of them had their birth at AES, and that goes for networking standards and those kind of things as well. Um, networking protocols and ways, dif just different ways of doing things are are presented there. So when I was at Masterphonics, again we're we're early on this digital game, and we had some digital converters that sounded really good, and the recordings from them held up today. Why was digital getting a black eye? And other other people saying it sounded brittle and it sounded harsh. At AES conventions was where I learned about jitter and dither and these kind of these kind of factors and filtering factors that uh, that affected digital audio. And we got lucky that JVC did it right on these processors we were using, but there was a lot of stuff that did it wrong. And and digital audios come along to where it's you know all but transparent to the source these days. Uh, but that wasn't necessarily the truth in, in the early days. But by going in and get, sitting in on those papers and hearing these people say, well, here's why, and here's how it can be better, and here's why, and here's why it can be better, and you started seeing those things, you saw tomorrow's products today in raw form, in, uh, in, a, in a foundational form uh, by going to AS conventions. And all of that is, is reproduced in our, in our online archives. AS also in, a, in the events arena has um, conferences, which a conference is typically a two to four day event that is focused on a single topic. And it might be immersive sound or it might be audio for um, virtual and augmented reality. The AVAR conference that we've had um, like every other year or so in Seattle for the last few years. Those kind of things are where people can uh, that are really focused on one particular subject can get together and dig down. And again, there are papers and such for those, and there's research there. And it's a great way for people just to, to really, uh, really immerse themselves in one single topic and make progress in, in a topic in, in a day. And those are happened and supported around the world. So you may have a uh, immersive conference in, in the UK, and you may have one in Japan or something another, another time later. So they, they can be reproduced or they can be um, uh, variances on the themes and such and, and done on a regional basis for, for people as well. We also have regional within, like for instance, within the U.S., um, the Nashville section does events uh, on their own. They've had live sound training event the last three years um, uh, on their own. The, uh, the Webster University section, which is a student section, amazing group of students because they put together a multiple day audio 
conference, kind of a mini convention that covers a broad range of topics and brings in really bright people to, to, to teach and educate on, um, on audio production from technique to, to theory and teaching people basics, how, from how a mic works to, uh, to a sophisticated miking technique for immersive sound, to those kind of things. And those students put together a great thing called CRASS, which is uh, Central Region Audio Student um, Summit. So those, those kind of events happen around the world. And then local sections, again, 90 professional sections, 100 plus um, student sections that are having regular meetings. Some of the student sections meet weekly during their, their semesters. And they bring in guest speakers. Um, we do visits and tours of, of, of a new facility or a facility that's been upgraded or a factory or a record pressing plant or those kind of things. As well as social events and and things that will will get the folks together and get them human networking and such too and build relationships that that really um, that really can span their entire careers. I was mining the AS awards um, lists uh, recently, looking for looking for a couple of folks to see what they had uh, what they had in the past and if they were eligible for other awards and such as as one of our members had asked. And in looking at this list of 1,400 roughly members since 1950s have uh, have have received AES awards for fellowships or uh, for service to the society or for service to the industry or for specific achievements to industry, uh, it was really remarkable about uh, who some of those names were. We're looking at people whose last names are synonymous with companies we all know. So you've got. Neve, I mean Rupert Neve, uh, as as one of the biggest examples, but also Sennheiser, Studer, those folks were that were behind these companies that were driving this innovation uh, were were also uh, AES members and and noted AES members, Klippel and Klipsch, um, which some of those consumer brands and such still went into that Pickering, the uh, turntable stylist, uh, he was one of the folks that that started AES. Uh, so you're seeing this huge list of, of, of people and businesses and such that today are there. You can even get into initials. So you've got James B. Lansing. Well, that's mm -hmm. JBL. You've got David Blackmer. Well, that's the DB and DBX. You've got Tomlinson Holman, who is the TH and THX. So this long list of members is, is notable for their technical achievements, their business achievements, for driving the industry forward. And then on the practitioner side, the list includes just some of the best of the best at recording audio film sound like, like Leslie Ann Jones from Skywalker. Um, and then on the recording side from, from the, the classic engineers like Rudy Van Gelder, uh, but and including Phil Ramone and Al Schmidt, uh, George Massenberg, whose his experience crosses a, a lot of different lines because he's been an inventor, manufacturer, recording engineer, uh, educator, and and George has always been on the on the leading edge of those kind of things. Um, we've got uh, our our current president elect um, Leslie Gaston Bird is a immersive engineer and and has been an educator as well, and she's pushing. The, the envelope forward on that. We've got um, um, Jim Anderson and Ulrike Schwartz who work together to do immersive sound uh, productions and have won Grammys and such for their work on that. Um, it, it, the list just, just goes amazing. on. Al Schmidt and, and those kind of guys are, are uh, who've, who've really left a musical legacy 
uh, and in some cases and in other cases are still making one that's going to uh, to span centuries and those folks are all all AES members. So the AES is funded uh, through a couple of ways by membership dues. Uh, our membership dues are currently $125 a year and, uh, and, and that member support goes to fund uh, the society's operations and then through events. Um, some of our events were, were, were not terribly mercenary at the Audio Engineering Society. We really want to educate, we want to train people, we want to grow um, our student members into the next leaders for the audio industry. So we will let students attend events for very nominal fees and student membership dues are low and students have all the access to all the same resources online that, that the full members do. Uh, but at the same time, when uh, the conventions that we've had, like like the New York conventions, again, we've had 153 conventions in the history of the society over that 75 years, as many as three a year at different times. And, and the convention revenues and those publications have been big in the past. That's not as, as big a, uh, a draw. Uh, these days, and and then we have folks that are our supporters, sustaining members, uh, companies like like Genelec who've done amazing, uh, made amazing commitments to us. Uh, there's many more. I, I shouldn't just single out Genelec, but they've been notable mm -hmm. in terms of uh, things like they they had a product launch the last two years, and they said, well, for this specific product, we're going to give AES a percentage of all of the sales. Of, of this particular product we're introducing today. And they've really been rock solid with this, so. Well, I love this segment that we just heard because he really does a fantastic job summing up. But of course, you could tell he could talk all day about the many contributions that AES has provided its members and the world. I loved the uh, the trends that they set and the standards that they created. I mean, it's amazing uh, what one group can do. Another thing that I wanted to point out is how proud we have been for over 20 years of collecting history of the music industry. We've also been collecting history of the audio world. And I'm very proud to say that in this collection, we have people like Norm Pickering, who was a founder of AES. I mean, how wonderful that is to have his story in these archives, along with Glenn Phoenix and John Krevitt and the great late, great Doug Sachs, what an amazing person, and uh, people out like uh, in Nashville, Tom Pick, uh, very important uh, to the AES over his long career. So we're really happy and proud to have those stories and to continue. Uh, I mentioned uh, John Krivitz a second ago. He has been a wonderful advocate for us and uh, a supporter of this program. So I have no doubt we'll continue to add members of AES to this collection with his and other people's help. So what's next? We heard from Frank talking about AES. Now let's hear from him talking about his own illustrious career. I mean, my dad was a music fan. We weren't so much much players, but uh, once I got into high school, started playing guitar and uh, that sort of thing, decided uh, I was never going to be uh, as, I was 18 at the same time Al Miola was, and I decided, you know what, I don't have a future in this as a, as a player. But uh, the electronic side of it and the support side of it and, and recording and all of those things always interest me as well. So um, followed that followed that star through after an Air Force radio career, uh, did broadcast radio for six years out of college. And then um, my better interns were from Music Row, uh, were from were, were getting jobs on Music Row and one, from the recording program at MTSU. 
And one of them introduced me to a Music Row uh, studio owner, and I ended up on the row and then followed that through uh, 10 years on as a studio tech and then started editing magazines. That was a lot you just said. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the radio part. Okay. What was that like? Well, it was fun. I mean, I, I knew electronics, and when I came to the to MTSU to go to school to study, I figured I know transmitters and that kind of thing, so maybe I should learn about broadcast production. So I went and got a radio TV film degree, but I interned with the chief engineer at the radio station. And, uh, you know, we went out at two in the morning and tore the tube socket apart on the 10,000 watt, uh, like, transmitter tube and those kind of things. And he said, yeah, he can do the job kind of thing. So when I graduated, uh, it was right as he was moving on to start a computer company, and I walked into his job. So I was... Uh, the chief engineer for WMOT, the public station at MTSU, for six years with a few other stations working on the side. Very cool. Yeah. Neat experience? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was, it was, it learned a lot. And again, audio, when you're in the military, they only care about about, you know, 3,000 hertz bandwidth because it's all about just intelligibility. Hmm. Now we have to start caring about fidelity and uh, dynamic range and all of those kind of things. So it was a good, a good audio education there and took a, a couple of uh, recording industry courses in MTSU too while I was going through the classwork. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. And so your, your engineering skills really developed at that time. Right. And I never, I'm, I'm not the, the button pusher engineer. Nobody's going to hire me to record their record. I can get things down. I have to know how everything worked, but I was the facilitator. You know, I was a tech, not, not so much as a, uh, as a, as a, Operating engineer, of course, I could run a, I, I DJ'd some and uh, radio, radio production, and that was a, a little simpler uh, than when I walked into Master Phonics Studios, my first gig on Music Row, and suddenly the console had 64 channels and and 337 knobs or whatever, and you know per bucket wow. <laughs> or whatever. Anyway, it was a it was a big it was a big thing, but it, but it's like everything else. If you you look at a big console like that, it looks intimidating, but it's one thing repeated 64 times, you know? So you learn one channel strip and you learn signal flow. And that was kind of my thing was large system signal flow uh, was what really allowed me to work in radio because when a station goes off the air, okay, what are the symptoms? Where is it? Where in the chain is something broken down? Do I have a signal there? I don't have it there. You find that, uh, that, that troubleshooting kind of thing. Uh, and that carried over into the recording studio because when you've got a room full of triple scale musicians and producers sitting there tapping his foot because the engineer can't work for some reason, you have to get in and figure out why really quick, figure out if you can either fix it, replace it, or just work around it and get that session going again and tell a joke to the producer as you leave the room to make him smile so everybody relaxes, you know. So it was, uh, it was, it was more, more uh, electronics than politics, but there's some human nature stuff in there too that, uh, that had to be factored in to, to be really successful in that. And we had fun for a, a decade on, on Music Row and the golden, golden era of recording when budgets were still huge and they spent weeks on records and it was a great time. About what era are we talking about? I started at Masterphonics in 1988. Oh, wow. Yeah, 1988 to 97. So uh, that was, like I say, the budgets were huge. And, um, and, and again, at those days, you had to spend a million dollars to be able to compete. It wasn't like where you can now 
do all of that kind of stuff in a doll with a with great quality and a and a far more minimal investment. That's really cool. So, um, so Studio Tech was basically the yeah. I was I was chief of tech services for Glen Meadows Masterphonic Studios. So, I uh, was responsible for making sure everything worked. Clients were happy. Uh, that things that signal flow, and we built uh, we built a small tracking room in the back of the main building of that facility um, while I was there, and then we took over another building and built a huge tracking space over there. So when we when we were doing the construction and such, no, I didn't build the walls, but where where were the wires running? Where were they running from and to? Do we have enough infrastructure? What cabling do we want to run? All of that kind of stuff, the technical infrastructure of the facility. Um, and specifying gear and racks and things like that was was my purview. So I was kind of the, I, I was the tech side of it, the audio tech side of it for the studio uh, while we were working with carpenters and AC guys and all of those kind of things. And I was a liaison with them for a lot of that construction. That's very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was Music Row like? Oh, it was great. It was a wonderful place to be and a wonderful time to be there too because um, digital had taken taken hold, and I'd had a little bit of experience with that when I was in radio working with um, a little Nakamichi digital recorder that were recorded on beta tapes and <laughs> such, and um, we did some live recording that way, but um, when I got to Masterphonics, they had been doing digital production, sample accurate digital editing for a dozen years already. You know, so they were they were really ahead of the curve, and they wanted to stay that way. Mm-hmm. So I got to get in there and cut my teeth on um, on a lot of fun projects like that. And we we were always pushing the envelope and nudging it forward and nudging quality forward and those kind of things. Just spending silly amounts of time rebuilding things and modifying things and buy a new piece of gear and rebuild the power supply before we put it in the rack. You know, things like that was a, were a lot of fun. It was a great learning time. And it was a it was a beautiful place to be. We had multiple rooms in there. So we had multiple two mastering rooms. Uh, the tracking studio in the back, the mix room in the front, and the dynamics of people moving around between rooms and and such, and and being that fly on the wall when tracking's going down and such, and getting to getting to slip in and sit in the corner and listen to the to the rough go down. You know, th- those kind of things are just just fabulous. And again, it was a it was a musical heyday uh, for uh, for that period of time, and um, studios were 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 king and gold on that and uh, we watched the ADAT come along and, and kind of take away some of the overdub stuff and then um, and then the mixing went into home, or envi- home environments and such and really you only needed the space when you had a big band to record and then it's no longer practical to afford that infrastructure for just that portion of it and such too. So it changed a lot over the years and there's still some good studios, great studios standing on on music row and then there's still some condos for there's some condos where a lot of them were too which is mm. really sad mm. yeah that's interesting so what happened in 97 uh 97 a friend of mine said hey have you ever thought about editing a magazine and i said no and he said well think <laughs> about it give me a call and a couple weeks later i asked him what he was talking about and he said uh, i'd been doing reviews for uh, Pro Audio Review Magazine for a while. Started out with bench tests and such and just testing, doing the geeky test stuff that I could do that others couldn't and translated into what it might sound like and why a, why a individual might appreciate that piece of gear or not. Um, and then reviews on converters and things like that that I could I, I felt qualified to uh, evaluate even though I wasn't the uh, the button pushing mixing engineer 
um, type. But um, I went out to dinner with a publisher who was looking to expand his British magazine into the U.S. And uh, I said, well, I'm a shop geek. You know, what do you what do you want? Why do you why would you want me to be an editor? He said, oh, you can write a complete sentence and we'll teach you the rest. You know your industry. Hmm. So um, I became the editor, walked out of the shop and just became the editor, founding editor of Audio Media USA when they had a U.S. edition um, in 97. And we did that for about two and a half years. And ProSound News came knocking about that time and said, hey, why don't you come be an editor for us? And I said, well, this magazine that I'm doing now is featurey and technical and and you're looking for... Uh, this is this is more of a news publication and a harder core. And, they, and I said, so how do I fit that? And they said the same thing. Basically, you know your industry, you can write a complete sentence, we'll teach you the rest kind of stuff. So I did that for oh, 15 years, 2000 to 2015. And we had Surround Professional in there for a while. We got Pro Audio Review back in, in part of our family as they were as they were coupled under that. We did custom magazines for Sweetwater and, and Guitar Center, and we did events, the Surround Conferences and Surround Music Awards, uh, Surround Broadcast Events in Vegas. So it was, it was a great time too, but just like so many things, publishing was being affected by, by the internet and um, issue sizes were getting smaller and smaller and it was harder to, to maintain that infrastructure and uh, uh, things were changing and I uh, sold chunks of myself to my of my time to my friends and uh, went off and worked for uh, AES and with uh, uh, Klein Media who does marketing and PR and such for a lot of audio companies, worked with a, British, a different British magazine for a while uh, as well and that's what I've been doing since. Well, I think we all learned something today. Absolutely. And had fun hanging out with you guys and Zach. I mean, come on. This is like a party over here in the Resource Center at NAM. I can't believe we got to spend our morning doing this. This is more fun than we should be able to have. Somebody call the local authorities. <laughs> Zach, we should be doing this again. If you invite me, I'll be here. Be careful what you ask for, Alex. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This has really been a lot of fun. And... Uh, I look forward to the next one. Bye-bye. Zach, you're invited. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Dan Del Fiorentino. Suzanne Del Fiorentino. And Alex Rosner. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have ideas for future podcasts or recommendations for interviews for the Oral History Program, please send an email to library at nam.org. That's library at namm.org.